This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast, welcoming you to 5784. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Hello, 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 hello. Sorry, that just the, the shofar rhythm, I just stuck in my head. I hear everything is Shvarim Teroa. Yes, and Takiyar-in-Chief, Joshua Molina. Hello. Happy and healthy. Today on the show, we're preparing for Yom Kippur. And if you've listened to our show since the mid to late 5700s, you know that typically we do something called the apology episode, where we share stories of people making amends, apologizing for things, things like that. But this year, we're actually giving you something a little bit different. Liel, do you want to explain what people are going to hear today? Yeah. So look, first of all, I will be very honest. I have hated the apology episode. Because it struck me like it's focusing on all the wrong things of Yom Kippur. I mean, look, first of all, if you think about this, there's a whole kind of like weird dynamic between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Like, technically, shouldn't Yom Kippur have come first and then Rosh Hashanah? Because we play this game. First of all, you ask for all the forgivenesses and then God considers things. And then it's the Happy New Year and you start to clean slate. But instead, we play this game where like, I'm going to open the book of life. Oh no, it's a, it's like a bad parenting trick. Like, don't make me punish you this way. But we all know, or, you know, we all think we know that at the end, you know, Hashem is going to forgive us and he's going to write our name in the book of life. We're like, oh my God, we're so, so, so happy and comes Yom Kippur, which is exactly the wrong way of seeing Yom Kippur, the focusing on this kind of like, oh no, I'm so sorry. I think there's like a deeper meaning. And the deeper meaning to me is that this is a day that really teaches us how to talk to each other. There's like amazing things about Yom Kippur, including the fact that it begins with this prayer that begins with a phrase, according to God's opinion and our opinion down here, we are allowing you to pray with those who have transgressed, to pray with those who have sinned, to sit around with bad people in this room and hold this community, which is really to me a day that gears us to think about how we talk. To each other. And so this is going to be the focus of our episode this week, how to talk better. Because really, there's one thing that we need help with on this podcast is talking. Here's the yeah. headline. Leah Leibovitz will not apologize. <laughs> here's, here's, here's what I have to say about talking. Uh, and and this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the thing that is, is like really driving me crazy. And honestly, I think, I think this is basically a huge part of the reason why we are in the the state we're in, politically, socially, globally, spiritually, emotionally, there seemed to be two modes of talking that were sort of raised into. One is this absolutely idiotic kindergarten slash elementary school. We sit quietly. We raise our hand. We wait our turn. We listen politely. Then we state our opinion, which is like this completely dyspeptic, soulless, anemic, limp version of conversation that basically turns it into some kind of like, you know, almost like a quadrille, like some kind of like weird 18th century dance where everyone has like those very mannered turns that they take. and, and choreographed part to play. Completely, which is so stupid. Anyone who's ever spent a second with a kid knows that's not how a kid slash any human thinks. And then the counterpart of it is the sort of Fox News variety in which we're going to shout and we're going to own you. We're going to bring you to the point where you can't argue anymore, which if it's done politely, it's like the debate team mentality. Like, no, I'm going to win points over you. I'm going to totally destroy you in the presidential debate. And if done poorly, it's just a stupid shouting fest. And against all this, there is this like amazing bulwark of Jewish talking, which is documented in the 2,711 freaking pages of the Talmud, which is basically a bunch of people speaking to each other in ways that are very sharp, often by our standards or anyone's standards, completely freaking impolite. It is actually, actually he says in one amazing point of the Talmud, when done right, it's basically like two knives sharpening each other. It's like metal rubbing against metal <laughs> and making each just sharper. And it's amazing because it doesn't stem from this expectation that we will agree on something. It doesn't require this kind of really Baroque politesse that it sees as some high mark of civility or whatever. It is just really concerned with the theme and with the content and with the heart of the conversation. And to me, that's how we should talk. Sorry, what's the tenor of Talmudic rudeness? When you say it's impolite at times, what does that sound like? There are a lot of curse words and put downs. Really? Including my favorite, 
Shinana, which means, what are you saying? You with long teeth? <laughs> Apparently having long teeth is like… Oh, snap. That's, that's the Yomama of the Talmud. Shinana. Yeah. I feel like the Yom Kippur focus on apologies and atonement and repentance and making amends… I've always sort of seen it, and rabbis come at me, but like I've always sort of seen it as sort of like a cop-out. It seemed to me, at least when I was younger and learning this as a child, you could kind of do whatever you want all year round. Right, and say, oh, sorry. And then it's like the purge, right? There's like one day where like the door's open and you can just apologize for all of it. And I always thought it was so funny because I feel like Judaism is so much about ethics and how you act. We've talked so much about this. It doesn't really matter what you believe almost. It's what, it's what you do. So it's sort of funny to me that there's sort of like this wholesale, everything must go moment where we need to apologize. And so I was intrigued by, and I really liked the shift on this episode of like how we communicate, right? How we're communicating all the rest of the year so that when it comes to Yom Kippur, we're not just like, oh shit, I got to apologize for like this thing I said, this thing I did. Like if we actually were communicating better, how would it sort of clear the deck in a different way for us throughout the year? Communicating better and also listening better. Here's probably my least favorite couple words in the English language. When I say something, and no surprises there, this happens a lot to me. And someone says, uh, tell me how you really feel. It's like, okay, I'll tell you how I really feel. I feel that people who say, tell me how you really feel are really fucking stupid. Because I just told you how I really feel. And there's something about your response that suggests that you're actually not ready to hear it, listen to it, or accept it. Because the thing that you're putting the emphasis on is some kind of bullshit decorum that actually means more to you than the honest expression of emotion that I just delivered. And if that offends you, you're not ready (laughs) for this emotional exchange because if the thing that you care the most about is sort of like, well, my feelings must be preserved, you're not going to get down to really, 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 really important things. And again, if, if there is a true meaning of Yom Kippur, like the true meaning of Christmas, I really think it's this. Look, one of the most amazing things that we did as a people over the course of the last, I don't know, several thousand years is it used to be that the Kol Nidre, the, the prayer, which is a relieving of us, of all of our vows. It used to be. You'd come in and you'd say, okay, I am now relieved of all the vows that I made from last Yom Kippur until this Yom Kippur, right? Man to God. Man to God, not man to man. Correct. All the shit that I said, really sorry, it's all good and done. And then about a thousand years ago, it changed. It's now, from this year until next year. Basically saying, look, we know that in the coming year, you're going to get excited. You're going to say some shit that's ridiculous. You're going to say and make some vows that are absolutely silly and unobtainable, and you're going to fail. But we don't want to crush you. We understand that part of this spirit of living excitedly, of pursuing big and noble ideas, of negotiating, of trying to kind of get to the bottom of this mission that we have here on Earth— is going to sometimes cause you to heat up a little bit and be like, I swear that I will never. And that's fine. That's fine. That's a huge part of it. And then on top of it, there's the other part. And, and Josh, what you just said is completely correct. Yes, that's us to, to God. But then the notion that these apologies are meant as intimate exchanges between us and our friends. And so let's not focus on the apologies. Let's focus on the communication. Let's focus on listening. Let's focus on talking. I'm curious for you, Joshua Molina, the one who talks to strangers the most on the internet. Like, what Uh-oh. have you learned? You really, I mean, for people who don't know, you have like a huge Twitter following and you respond to people in both directions. Like, you really love communicating. Well, that is true. Although I will, I will admit to some guilt in the arena. Like, I will interact with people in a real and sincere and genuine fashion. And often I will just interact with no real... <laughs> No real reaching across whatever uh, philosophical aisle is, uh, is is the current <laughs> problem. And I sometimes, as I am spoken to, speak out in the same way. So you should definitely listen to this episode. <laughs> yes. No, I definitely have something to learn. There are times when I'm just not really, it's more performative than real interaction. Although, can I, can, I, can I defend this for a second? Sure. Because I think there's something actually wonderful about this. You know, yes, you could come at it from a position of like, oh, it's just performative nonsense yelling at strangers on Twitter. What a waste of time. But very frequently when I read your stuff, it's like, huh, even when I get that you're just having some fun with some person without any real intent to have a real conversation, it's actually incredibly helpful for everyone else watching 
to see your thought process, to be kind of not just entertained by it, because it's often very funny, but also kind of provoked to thought by it. It's actually, I think, a very valid and again, very Talmudic mode of conversation because those rabbis would frequently, you know, troll each other like, oh, yeah, you say we have to pick up an animal in order to legally halachically own it. What if I have an elephant, dude? Like, it's that kind of like, you know, back and forth that is not just meant as like shitposting, but it's also meant as, as a real way of, of testing everyone's assertions. And you do this a lot. You test people's assertions online. That is true. And, pe- and people push mine. I will say also people, people test my own. I am a member of a union that's striking now. And I've been taking public positions against those I feel are going against the strike. Specifically, I spoke out against Drew Barrymore's decision to go back to work. And I called her a scab and people felt I was being too mean and too harsh. And she has now actually changed her decision. And people are trying to impress upon me the need to forgive or acknowledge that somebody has made a good decision. I guess what I'm saying is that people do get through to me, even through social media, through uh, such a an often difficult way to communicate. I, I do feel reached. So you're ready to say now that you thought 50 First Dates was an okay movie? Never saw it. <laughs> people have reached me, and I welcome her back into the fold. I think she's made a good decision. I think in part because people were holding her to a standard to which she was not holding herself. But Unlike others, she is actually, for whatever reason, and uh, it's not mine to interpret her reasons, has made what I consider to be a commendable and good decision. And uh, she should be lauded rather than continue to be uh, pilloried, having changed her mind. Today's episode is all about how we talk to each other. And we're talking to three Jews who think a lot about how we communicate. First up, linguist Deborah Tannen, who coined our absolute favorite phrase, cooperative overlapping, which is the perfect way to describe our conversational style. And guess what? It turns out interrupting isn't always a bad thing. Then we talked to Julie Rice. Julie co-founded SoulCycle, or as I call it, Spinagogue. And her latest project is Peoplehood, which is all about facilitating better conversations through community. She tells us how we can work out our empathy muscles by listening to each other. Finally, we chat with Mitchell Silk, the first Hasidic Jew to hold a Senate-confirmed position in the federal government. He speaks Mandarin and Cantonese, and also just translated a major Hasidic Torah commentary into English. He's a master of communicating across worlds. We hope you'll learn as much as we did from these fascinating conversations. Deborah Tannen teaches linguistics at Georgetown University and was surprised when one of her academic works went viral. Someone had discovered her concept of cooperative overlap and shared it with the world on TikTok. We're not at all surprised because cooperative overlapping is the most perfect description we've ever heard of how we Jews like to communicate. We got to ask her all of our questions about how Jews talk and did our best not to interrupt or overlap. Deborah Tannen, welcome to Unorthodox. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to say that we are your most active disciples. We have taken your your term, cooperative overlapping. We say it all the time. We have found it to be such a helpful way of describing the jocular way in which Jewish conversations are excitable and, and supportive and not actually completely disrespectful. So could you just walk us through this concept, how you come to develop it, where it comes and how it explains us as a people. This all goes back to my concept of what I call conversational style. And that's everything about how we say what we mean. Tone of voice, how loudly or softly we tend to speak, what you tell stories about, how you would get to the point of the story, and everything about how you get and keep the floor and how you show that you're listening and involved. It all started for me with the uh, study that led to my doctoral dissertation. I was recording everything at that time. I was a grad student at Berkeley. I happened to record a conversation at Thanksgiving dinner. I thought I was going to analyze everybody's conversational style. In the end, I couldn't because the three New York Jewish speakers, I could 
analyze our style because, you know, we talked quite a bit, but the other three, I really couldn't because they had a hard time getting the floor. So that got me started thinking about the one conversational style. Now, it's really important for me to point out, I didn't call it New York Jewish, or I would now say East European Jewish style. I just called it high involvement style, because this really is the point about conversational style. It's that all of us, in all our conversations, we have to balance the need to show we're involved, and we need to not impose on other people. So we need to balance those two things. And Different cultures, different regions, actually members of different economic class, all of those things affect these habits. And it's not like I think, oh, I'm going to be involved. I'm going to talk this way. It's that there is this style by which the emphasis is placed on showing you're involved. You speak more quickly. You tell more personal stories. You stand closer when you talk to each other. And one of the elements is what I ended up calling cooperative overlapping. (laughs) And I developed that term because it was very important to me as a linguist. So linguistics is the science of language. It was very important to me to make a distinction between overlapping, which is a descriptive term, two voices are going at once, and interruption, which is an interpretation and a judgment. So let me in, in, interpret you for a second. Uh, sure, please, please. God forbid, Overlap. interrupt you. And, and ask. You <laughs> Remember, know, okay. I'm from Brooklyn, so it's okay. <laughs> I've never been more self-conscious about when to jump into it. I know, I know. <laughs> this, is, this is a source of endless fascination for us. So we want a really kind of deep down user's guide. How can we tell? What's collaborative <laughs> overlapping and what's interruption? What are some things that a, a lay person, not a linguist, not a scholar, but a Jew could tell to observe these different uh, dynamics at play? Uh, you can't always tell. But some of the key points would be you're not changing the subject. You're saying something that builds on what the other person is saying. You're, in many cases, um, amplifying what they're saying. And it, it could be as small as, yeah, mm-hmm, uh-huh. And for some people, that's going to be perfect. You're showing involvement. For others, it's going to be you're rushing me along. You're saying mm-hmm, uh, too often. And if you're not saying it often enough, they're going to think, are you really sleeping or are you listening to me? So it can be really that small. And it can be as long as, oh, yeah, the same thing happened to me. But you're not really going to tell the story at that point. You're just showing that you that you understand the point. I think a lot of it, too, is what we know about the person we're speaking to. If you uh, have reason to think <laughs> that this person is your friend and they're probably well disposed toward you, I mean, that in itself could be evidence. I think it's mostly frustrating if you don't know the person that well. So we are three Jews who host a Jewish podcast. Every week, when we stop interrupting each other and talking ourselves, we invite on two guests. We have a Jewish guest, and then we have a Gentile of the week. There is a thing that I've noticed in these segments where I'm super conscious of us talking more than this person or talking over this person and them getting like a little stressed or confused or anxious. And it doesn't happen as often with the Jewish guests. And this is across the country, across the world, right? We're talking to Jews from all over. So Is it true? Do we Jews do this more? I actually do not think that it's Jewish, per se. It's East European. One of the things I quickly learned when I wrote about this, in fact, I'd be talking about it on the radio, and somebody would call in and say, well, my husband and I, we're both from New York. We're both Jewish. But, and then they point out, we have this issue. They accuse me of interrupting. I say, no, why don't you, you know, why don't you show you're interested when I'm talking? And I say, is one of you of East European Jewish background? and the other German-Jewish background. And that has always been the case. Wow. So it's it's East European. I had published this in, in academic venues, and there were all kinds of follow-up studies. One was of someone from Finland talking to Russians. Russians were the high involvement. Finns were the, the other term I came up with was high considerateness. Now, it's not that... <laughs> If you're high considerate in style, you're not involved. It's not that if you're high involvement, you're not considerate. It's where you put the emphasis. Do you make sure to show your involvement by talking along? So it, it seems to be the case that it's Mediterranean. So Greeks, Italians, the Levant, Armenians, Poles, Russians, so East European, many Arab countries. There are many, many places in the world. And in fact, just last example, a student from Peru 
wrote her dissertation about this, talking to Venezuelans. This is now driving me insane because I've spent <laughs> so much time sitting in classrooms, both in Israel and in the United States, where I have been told there is one rule, like one set of instructions for how to have a polite conversation, which is you must listen, you must not speak, you must raise your hands, which always seemed to me, Jew of Eastern European descent here, uh, as completely <laughs> kind of, you know, oppressive in this weird way. Should we change the way we teach kids how to speak? Should we have a more vibrant, dynamic recognition that there are different styles of conversation? For me, the answer to everything is we need to understand that there are conversational style differences. Since I write not only for academics, but also books for general audiences, I'm always asked, what's the best way? And I always have to say, it depends on your conversational style, the one of the person you're speaking to, the context. It certainly makes sense in some context, perhaps a classroom, that you should not just jump up and speak along. So I think what we need to teach kids is awareness. And I also really hope to teach everybody respect for style differences. That's the thing that's most disheartening to me that people are so sure that their way is right. I'll just tell you a quick funny story. Many, many years ago, I was interviewed by Arlene Francis and it was Voice of America. I had written about New York Jewish style. It was in actually New York style. It was in um, a little thing in uh, New York Magazine. And so I explained all this. It's a way of being polite. It's a way you're showing interest. And the end of the thing she said to thank me for being on the show, of course, then she said to the audience, and if you come to this country, don't talk that way or I'll be very mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> I get that from people with every kind of background. Our reactions are emotional. We have learned so deeply over time that others must mean what we would mean if we spoke in that way. I need to add one other very important thing. It's never absolute. It's always relative. You may be, if you're from the Midwest and you're talking to someone from New York, the New Yorker may be the one who's doing all the talking. The Midwesterner talking to someone from Maine, from New England, might find themselves doing all the talking. The New Yorker with someone from Israel might find they're having a hard time getting a word in. There's the talking along to show you're involved, and there's how long a pause you leave before you think the other person's done and it's your turn. It occurs to me as we have this conversation among the four of us through new technology or more recent technology, that it's almost like a training tool. There are different uh, modes of communication when we're communicating through Zoom as we are now. I can see all of you at once, so I can tell there are visual cues that you're listening to what I'm saying. I wonder if it's a good training tool to take a new skill set into live communication. That's actually a great idea. I often point out to people, if you find yourself either you can't get a word in edgewise or you're doing all the talking and you didn't want to, one of it is if you're finding it hard to get the floor, but it just goes against you to start speaking while someone else is speaking, make a gesture. Uh, and on the other hand, if you find you're doing all the talking, you think the other one has nothing to say, you might count to seven before you take the floor. And I have learned to do that with speakers, especially from the Midwest. And uh, you might be amazed that the other person does have lots to say. They were just having a hard time finding the right moment to come in. So it seems like every couple about to get engaged or married should really have a meeting with a linguist. You know, forget <laughs> a rabbi, right? To just teach us how to do this. Can it be taught? Could you sit two people down who are having a terrible time communicating, listen to them talk, and then say, guys, I have a five-point plan for you to get your points across in a way that will make sense to the other person. I'm so often asked, can people change their conversational style? And I often observe, usually what they're thinking is getting the partner to change their style. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can if we want to. And the question is, do you want to? And it's hard because it's your sense of what it means to be a good person. And you don't want to be the kind of person who would talk in this way that you wouldn't wouldn't actually talk. But sure, once you have gotten past that and really, yeah, this is just conversational style, you can practice. I think it's harder for what I call high considerateness style people to push themselves to talk in ways that seem rude to them. And it's somewhat more feasible to count, for example, to count to seven. But yeah, I think if you want to adjust your style, you certainly can. You won't change the fact that 
conversations won't be as much fun hmm. if they're not your style. Um, I think I say somewhere, a perfectly tuned conversation is a vision of sanity. And I have a colleague who has actually written that when you can't figure out the right time to come in, it's as if you were speaking to different language that was not your native language, or you have schizophrenia. I mean, it's it's it makes you feel something's wrong and something's wrong with you. Part of doing this show, I've I've gotten so excited when I talk to people. I want to show them how exciting what they're saying is and how much it's resonating with me. But I think it's hard for us to modulate that sometimes and not, you know, terrify someone with our enthusiasm. Talking to people is always a very challenging enterprise. You've got to have antenna. You've got to have a sense of how they're reacting to you and how you might speak differently to get a different response. It's very complicated. But it doesn't mean that we also can't live with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of slight discomfort. I think it's only when it gets really gets in the way. Um, the thing that to me is so disheartening about all of this is the judgments that people make about each other. You're not interested in me. You're not listening to me. And it isn't, again, it isn't only this issue of cooperative overlapping. Is asking personal questions a show of interest or is it an interrogation? And so much of what I talk about rings bells for people like this cooperative overlapping did or very early on giving a talk. There was a woman in the uh, audience and she was like middle-aged at this point in college. She had spent the evening with someone at the end of the evening. He said, it was nice having dinner with the FBI. <laughs> and she had no idea what oh, he was talking about until she heard me <laughs> talk decades later that she's showing interest in him by asking personal questions. And the funny <laughs> thing about all this is if what you're doing isn't working, our impulse often is to do more of it. <laughs> so probably she was asking so many personal questions because he wasn't answering any of them. Something I'm fascinated by is that, you know, as you mentioned, you've written so many books, mothers and daughters, sisters, friends, men and women. And a lot of them are published in other countries as well. I'm so curious about that process. You know, does the Indonesian editor or the Hungarian editor ever come back and say, excuse me, this this thing is actually not relevant for our market? Or like, have you found extra texture in those experiences? That's a fascinating question. And it amazed me that my work has translated so much to other countries. And no, I haven't gotten that. So I think the specifics may differ, but the parameters tend to be the same. Uh, the most astonishing to me, the book about women and men, you just don't understand. That's now been translated into 31 languages. How, how could that be? I did not in any way think that I was describing anything other than the culture I knew. But a lot of this does seem to be universal. But it doesn't mean everything is. And, and where you place yourself in it, of course, could be different. So do you still enjoy conversation? Or are you like so attuned to the mechanics <laughs> of it that you're having a conversation back? Oh, my God, right now he's highly considerate and I'm being this like, can you just be in the moment and enjoy a good chat? Uh, first of all, I want to stop you from saying being considerate because we're all being considerate. <laughs> it's whether our style is high considerateness or um, high involvement. You, you can tell where I fall on that <laughs> spectrum, right? You can tell I'm enjoying this conversation, right? <laughs> Aren't there people, in fact, though, that go beyond one of the paradigms and are inconsiderate? I mean, I love that question. You don't need me to point out that people sometimes have bad intentions. We often assume that. That's not news. But to realize that sometimes when you think people have bad intentions, they don't, that's news. And so that's why I call mine a rhetoric of good intentions. It's amazing to be chatting with you on the eve of the high holidays when, you know, we're all pledging to be better people. And I do think you've given us a lot of nuggets about how we can be better conversationalists. I don't think I could ever wait seven seconds, but I could wait three seconds. <laughs> what else should we be taking away into our new Jewish year of 5784? Another possible tool is what I call meta-communication, that is talking about communication. So maybe neither of you wants to change. You don't feel you can, you don't want to, but you can talk about it. So you could say, I see you flinching when I start to talk or I, I'm doing all the talking here. Would you rather I slow down or do you need more time or am I coming across as this or that? Finding a way to say, if you again, it's easier for the one who's doing all the talking to say something different. I know you don't want to silence me here, but I'm having a hard time getting the floor. If I'm not saying anything, maybe you could wait a second and I'll gather my thoughts. So you can talk about the communication 
And that applies to everything. You know, am I asking too many questions here? More complicated. What if you think that somebody is not interested in you because they're not asking questions? You know, your family don't, don't care about me. They never asked me anything. It's a little harder, but you could say, I'm just going to start talking and see if they listen and, and if they're interested. So flexibility is the answer. And I think it's all about kindness, which is so fundamental to Jewish culture and Jewish ethics. And um, you could just think of it as a kind of kindness, I think, to be more flexible and to assume the other person may have good intentions. And if so, how could we adjust or how could we talk about it? Deborah Tannen, thank you for this high involvement conversation. It's been a pleasure overlapping with you. <laughs> thank you. I, I can't resist making one more comment here. It blew my mind when this all, why have we all heard the word cooperative overlapping? Because about two years ago, it went viral on TikTok uh, <laughs> and then Instagram. Somebody found it in my academic book about that Thanksgiving dinner. I would never use the term in my writing that for general audiences. And it really caught me off guard and surprised me that the fact that it was a technical term is what made it powerful. One of the people responding to that said, oh my God, it's so gratifying to know there's a word for it. It's a thing. And <laughs> for it, this compulsion we have, it's real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Having a name for it makes it real. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Rice co-founded the fitness phenomenon Soul Cycle, and now she has a new endeavor. It's called Peoplehood, and it gets people in a room to talk about all sorts of things together. Julie Rice, welcome to Unorthodox. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. You know, when we were talking about the theme of this episode, sort of learning to communicate, learning to work on our relationships, you were the first person who came to mind to me as someone I wanted to talk to. And the reason why is because you are the co-founder of SoulCycle, which really revolutionized how we think about workouts, right? How we think about taking care of ourselves. And your newest project is fascinating to me. Tell us what's next for you. Sure. Well, Let's go back to SoulCycle for a second because it really does sort of inform what we're doing now. And it also really ties into sort of the bigger themes of what we're talking about today, which are community and communication and the way that we learn to treat and live with each other. Elizabeth Cutler, my partner, and I started SoulCycle almost 20 years ago now, which is wild to think about. And the truth about SoulCycle was it was really just about being with other people, supporting each other, and finding joy through movement. And we really felt like if we could create community around that and create a place where people could learn to support each other rather than compete against each other, we could build a different kind of fitness environment, one that hopefully people would like enough to continue to come back to. And as a result of it, they would get in shape. And I always sort of say that being in good shape at SoulCycle was kind of a byproduct of really just showing up for your community every day. And I think what we learned at SoulCycle was that 
when people were in the dark listening to music and sweating and doing their thing, they really wanted to be better. They wanted to express things to other people about the way that they felt or make an apology or reach out and call somebody maybe they hadn't in a while because they really felt in those moments supported and they felt like they could be better and do better. And then the lights would come up and they'd hit the streets of New York or wherever they were riding. And really, they didn't have the skills to do it. And as we thought about moving on to our next project, both Elizabeth and I really benefited from doing a lot of work on our relationship with each other. Very early on in our partnership, we realized that we were two people running one company. And if we were really going to make decisions for the greater good of the company, we were going to need to find a different way to talk to each other. And we began to do this really interesting work with a coach that Elizabeth found one night in the middle of the night. She Googled Life Coach NYC during a panic attack, and she found this incredible coach who is an advisor on our project now and we still work with today. But what she really taught us to do was how to listen to each other. And that really turned out to be a wildly powerful thing and really what Peoplehood, our new project, is built on today. And so Peoplehood's very interesting. It's a one-hour conversation experience. There's a guide, kind of like a soul cycle instructor. They're going to share first. They're going to tell you their story. They're going to lead you through this one hour with some interesting questions and prompts. But what we do in those rooms is we share first as a community, And then we break into partners and we do some one-on-one sharing. And in those breakout groups, what we're really doing is we're learning how to listen to each other, how to build our empathy muscles, how to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Sometimes we do it with strangers and sometimes we do it in groups where we bring somebody. We run couplehood, we run motherhood, we run bestiehood. There's a lot of ways to come with somebody that you do know. But ultimately what's happening is that we are giving people the space and the skills to learn to talk to each other and be with each other differently. So Julie, I I want to ask my question in the form of a story. I want to tell you about one of the most moving religious experiences I've ever had, which happened one morning in West Hollywood. I was in town for a day or two. And as I always do, I went to SoulCycle. And it was very different than New York. A lot of people touching each other, which in New York we don't do. But at some point, the instructor just looked into the mid-distance and said, guys, it's time to put more truth on the wheel, which is an expression that has since stayed with me as like kind of really (laughs) profound expression of what it is that we do. Now, I I look at that, I look at peoplehood, and I think to myself, these are the functions that good old timey religion used to provide. Do, do, do you see that connection? Is your mode, success, rise, gestalt, the sort of um, result, if you will, of religion's decline? Look, I am just a huge people person, community lover. I mean, part of the reason that I love building things is like, I just like to be in the middle of chaos and creation and community. And that's just such a huge part of who I am. And so For me, it's like I am always looking for a way to like make a city a small neighborhood for myself. In fact, I always say like, you know, for a long period of time, I was the mayor of the Upper West Side. It's like, you know, between my studio and my kids at PS87 and all the things I used to say, like if I sent my kids out into, you know, the streets around, you know, between 72nd and 86 with no shoes, no coat, no money, they would come home well fed with a winter coat and somebody (laughs) else's sneakers and like... That's what would happen. To me, religion is really feeling like a part of something bigger. And whether that is the Upper West Side or whether that is the Parents Association at my kid's school or whether that's a part of the High Holidays or sitting in Temple, all of those things to me feel religious. Like those connections with people that create something that is more profound than just me, where I can buy into something where we all decide we're going to take care of each other. For me, that truly is religion. And so I don't know that it was an intentional thought when we thought about, oh, like, like, let's replace, you know, religion with SoulCycle. Although I have many customers that have told me that they felt perfectly okay riding on Yom Kippur. They felt like God would understand. And you know what? I kind of agreed. But I will say that the most interesting thing that was ever written about SoulCycle 
after SoulCycle was like wildly, you know, popular in the zeitgeist and everybody was writing about it, Vogue and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, there was this report that landed on my desk called How We Gather. And it was done by a bunch of Harvard Divinity students. But in this report, they wrote about 10 new organizations that they felt like were replacing organized religion because organized religion was on the decline. And what they wrote about SoulCycle was so much more spot on than anything that anybody had ever written that I just found it fascinating. I reached out to them. I ultimately have wound up doing a lot of work with them, you know, done some stuff up at Harvard Divinity School and whatever. But I do think it's a really profound thing to think about. And I do have to say that with peoplehood, I've thought about it a bunch more just because of my last experience in creating SoulCycle. And and I will tell you that even as I was thinking about Yom Kippur and, you know, I'm about to begin my uh, annual uh, study group. I, one, once a year, I get a, c- a couple of friends together and we try to learn to be a little bit more Jewish. But as I was thinking about what we're going to study this year and all of those things, it's really interesting to me. You know, we carve out this day to sit down and think about atonement and think about ways that we can be better people. And mostly those include righting the wrongs we've done against the people in our lives. And yet, how should we do that? Is there a map for us? Is there a place to go? Is there a forum where we, am I supposed to just pick up the phone and call my mom? Or am I supposed to just be hungry and at six o'clock assume that somebody took care of that for me? And now everybody feels good about me for the next year, right? Right. The, The ride is over. Right, great. Let's have bagels and everyone forgave me. Where I do think it's a really interesting thing to think about what would happen if we all did peoplehood at the end of Yom Kippur where we got to actually say the things that we wanted to say to somebody else, where, you know, I had three minutes just to tell you what I apologized for and what I felt I did to you. And you just sat there and listened. And then we traded and you got to tell me how you felt hurt by me. And I just had to sit there and listen. What would that exchange feel like for us? And would that maybe clear the air more than just sort of internalizing it and then eating bagels? So for one second, let me play the role of the bearded zealot fanatic. It's wonderful. I am 100% in on everything. And yet, I wonder how you feel about the possibility of keeping these communities together without a real ethos. Because one of the things that these religious movements, for lack of a better term, did, even if you didn't you know, believe in the cause, there was a set of convictions, of, of yes. connections that you felt very strongly about, which enabled part of this emotional communal building work to do. Do you think we could manufacture it without the kind of grander force? You know, it's a great question. And I will say that something that we're seeing really striking a chord at peoplehood is the groups that have motherhood, you know, a group of moms that have children under five years old and still aren't sleeping at night and are really asking a lot of questions for the first time. There is definitely something about a group like that that has different guiding principles than just 20 strangers in a room. But the other thing that I can definitely say, and I think that we can all agree, you know, our Surgeon General just put out, you know, an 80-page report on the state of loneliness in this country. And I think that we can all agree that at this point, sadly, we actually don't need guiding principles because the truth is social media, global pandemic, All of the ways that our world is spinning is just stripping basic human skills out of our lives each and every day. And I do think that although you might believe in one religion, I might be in in another, I think that we can all agree that isolation and loneliness are really killing people. And when people show up for peoplehood, it's a very easy, low-lift way for them to walk in a room, have a conversation started for them and be able to connect with people in a way that people are just not finding in their lives. Amen. Could you walk us through what happens during one of these sessions? So when you come to peoplehood, you either log in or you walk in and you are put in a room. If it's peoplehood, you're there with, you know, 15 to 20 strangers. If it's couplehood, you are there with your partner and other strangers And the lights kind of go down and there's a leader in the front and they're going to lead you through a little bit of breath work and a little bit of movement all to some fantastic music. 
And then we're going to go into our first community round. And in that round, people are going to go around and there's going to be a question that we're going to answer into the circle. And we're just going to begin to get people's voices in the room. And then we go around again and we ask something that's a little bit deeper. And then we begin to get into what our theme or intention is for the day. And it can be anything from atonement to change, transition, whatever we are talking about that week. And our guide is going to explain to you higher listening, which is really the principal thing that we teach people in these gathers. And higher listening is really learning to listen to somebody without responding, without giving advice, without bringing your own opinion or your own story to the conversation. All especially hard for Jews, I will say. <laughs> As my husband likes to say to his mother, anytime that you start a sentence with you should, I'm hanging up on you. But the truth is that we break into these one-on-one -on -one breakouts where everybody has time to be the sharer and the listener. And we talk to each other in a way that feels very unnatural. I mean, it's really hard to not give your opinion or not let somebody know that you have a shared experience or a commonality. But as the sharer, what happens is that you begin to peel your own onion, right? It's what happens in the moments that you think you have nothing left to say that's when you really get to know yourself the best. And that's when your partner actually can really put themselves in your shoes because it's it's really the truth. And when you talk about putting truth on the wheel, I mean, that's really like the wheel turn up, right? It's those last 30 seconds or a minute of that three minute share when you think, gosh, I've got nothing left to say. How am I going to kill this time? And then all of a sudden you think, oh, that's really what I was thinking. And somebody else gave me the space to express that. And we do that twice and then we go around and in our sort of like our last part of our gather, we have a way to connect with each other and talk about ways that we saw ourselves in each other and, and really find commonality. And then we give a little bit of gratitude and we do a little bit more breathing and then we're out of there. And I think there are two things. I think when you come with a bunch of strangers, it's a great way to meet new people and process your own thoughts. And I think when you come with somebody else, it's about spending intentional time and getting to know another person that you already think you know pretty well a lot better. I did one of the motherhood sessions and one of the breakouts, you have to talk for three minutes. The other person cannot say a word. It was the hardest thing I've ever done to hear someone talk about something that was probably quite similar to mine, right? I was so overwhelmed by how hard it was for me to not respond to someone. And it is really wild to think what happens when you just listen. Right. And then take that and imagine coming with your husband or a child or a person <laughs> that you have an agenda with. So the interesting thing was, you know, for my business partner and I, I mean, we might as well have just been sitting in different rooms. That's, you know, I mean, I came in knowing that we needed to do it one way and she came in knowing that we needed to do it another way. And we were basically just waiting for the noise to stop so that we could try to win. Right. That's what's so crazy. And Honestly, by practicing with strangers, you actually do begin to build these muscles so that when you get into those situations at your dinner table where your kid is saying something and you want to just like stop the mid-sentence and give them the answer rather than just let them finish, or you're having the same circular conversation with your partner that you've had 400 times, and again, you're just waiting for the noise to stop. When you practice these things over and over, all of a sudden, you know, you really do learn how to give somebody else the room to finish their thought. I've led big companies and I've had a lot of opportunity to have conversations with a lot of people. And the truth is most people really do just want to be heard. People are not looking for answers. People don't want you to tell them what to do. There's some comfort in having common experiences with people. But most importantly, when people leave a conversation, they want to feel like you really got them. I love this. And I think this is this idea of higher listening is something we can all bring to our lives in this, this new Jewish year. Just the idea of like stopping <laughs> and, and hearing. And I think that that's something that's so valuable to our community now. We're so divided we're so scheduled, we're so programmed, we're so filled with an agenda for every minute, it seems. And so I, I really, I, I guess I just want to thank you for bringing this concept to us and for just bringing peoplehood to us as well. Well, thank you for having me. And let me just, let me just put one more thing in here and say that this, this does not need to be, um, we, we don't need to just atone one day a year. When we learn to have conversations like this on a daily basis, when we insert this type of practice into our lives, 
what happens is, is that we normalize expressing ourselves and we normalize hearing the way that other people feel. And then truthfully, by next Yom Kippur, we have a lot less to atone for because we've worked out a lot of the kinks along the way. And isn't that really what we all want, right? To be in relationships that are happy and healthy and strong and that we are really understanding what the people around us need. Julie Rice, thank you for being on Unorthodox. All our listeners can check out Peoplehood at peoplehood.com and they can start their higher listening today. Silk is a Hasidic Jew who speaks multiple Chinese dialects and who served as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for International Markets, where he worked on China-related trade law. He's actually the first Hasidic Jew to hold a Senate-confirmed position in the federal government. He also just published the first-ever English translation of the Caduceus Levi, a classic Hasidic commentary on the Torah. He shares how communication, whether in Chinese, Hebrew, or English, is the key to revealing what we all have in common. Rabenu Mitchell Silk, Moisha Silk, what a pleasure. Welcome to the show. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Leon. Readers of Tablet Magazine already know you because they have read Armin Rosen's piece and have been privy to a slice of your amazing life. But for those of us new Mitchell Silk fans, give us, give us a backstory. You are a teenager in public school in Florida. You take a job at a friend's Chinese restaurant. It was a defining point in my career, Liel, wasn't it? Absolutely um, it was. With the, I would like to say that there was a, a ton of foresight in the decision, but the reality was that I had a great interest in China, and I had a couple of friends in my neighborhood whose parents had a Chinese restaurant, and I needed some money to help out my mother because of our family circumstances. And so I went to work right after my bar mitzvah, as a dishwasher and prep cook in the kitchen of a small restaurant, a kitchen rather lacking in air conditioning in South Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and it took you how long to learn both Mandarin and, and Cantonese? Yeah, or? so that's that's also an interesting story of Hashgacha as well, an interesting story of Providence. After I'd graduated from dishwasher prep cook to busboy to waiter, I recognized that in order to make it in the restaurant, namely to be able to serve my diners, effectively, that I needed to learn the lingo. So I started driving my friends crazy and asking them, how do you say this? How do you say that? How do you say the other thing? And it took me a couple of years until I had mastered Cantonese. The time was late 70s, early 80s in America. 95 plus percent of the Chinese in America were from the Guangdong province and spoke Cantonese. It's a major dialect in China but spoken by only about 5% of the population in China, <laughs> while it was about 96 or 7% right. of the Chinese in America at the time. So I had a rather rude awakening when I actually learned that Cantonese was spoken by a very small percentage of the population in China. <laughs> the guy learned Chinese. <laughs> yeah, the, the other kind. The wrong restaurant. The, the kind we don't speak. Oh, gavald. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, I did a little bit of homework and I learned that there was a great intensive summer program at Middlebury College. You were secluded from the world. Now, I got myself in a little bit of trouble because my teachers um, were all native Mandarin speakers, very proper Mandarin speakers, who looked down on the Southerners, particularly the Cantonese. So whenever I didn't have a word in Mandarin that I did not want to say in English, I would default to Cantonese. And I got my wrist slapped more than a few times because of that. <laughs> Yiddish would have been better. So Great academic career, super successful career in law, many years spent, you know, living and working in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And then you're back home stateside. You're at the peak of your profession. You have a good, nice life. And then a phone call comes and says, hey, do you want to take a major pay cut and go work for the federal government? Where does that phone call find you? That's not how they say it, is it? I think they should. <laughs> well, well, actually... The phone call that I got did kind of go like that. I was given an offer, but every offer is conditional on vetting 
and on security clearance. So you can imagine that I was very, very popular in Borough Park amongst all of my neighbors and, and my wife's very large family. Um, when the FBI and Secret Service started knocking on doors <laughs> as a part of my my security background check. Which, and, by the way, I'm sorry, but when you are doing a background check for a Hasidic man, like, you don't even have to talk to, like, friends. Like, you could just go to the neighborhood and be like, hey, you know, Moishe Silk, let me tell you about Moishe. Like, right? You could just walk down the street. Well, we, you, you say it jokingly, but it's it's pretty true. <laughs> but after all was said and done, the security clearance came through, the vetting was completed, the phone rang. I picked up the phone and I said, hello, <laughs> and came booming through the receiver, a voice that was speaking on speakerphone and said, this is Eli Miller. I'm chief of staff for Secretary Mnuchin. I am offering you the job of deputy assistant secretary at the Department of the Treasury. And I just have one question for you. Why are you doing this? <laughs> so I'd like to address the yarmulke in the room. Um, you become the first Hasidic Jew to hold, what is it, a Senate-confirmed position in the U.S. government? I mean, what happens when you get there? Are they completely accommodating? What happens on Fridays? Like, just walk us through the sort of ins and outs. From the secretary down, everybody was wholly, wholly respectful on all of the requirements of an Orthodox life. And having said that, I am wholly confident that nobody understood what an Orthodox life was about when I entered and probably not much more when I <laughs> left. So the, the big issues for me were Shabbos and food. Everybody really wanted to be accommodating, but nobody really knew what it was all about. Day one, I had no idea what to expect, yeah, let alone the people in the building. And one of the few items on my schedule for day one was my commissioning. I had to be sworn in. So very merrily, with a high degree of awe, I carried down the Tikkun Koran, a Bible that was owned by the progenitor, the founder of the Hasidic movement that my grandfather was aligned with, Nadvorna, which is a shtetl in Western Ukraine. So I brought down a Bible couple hundred years old, prized possession. I'm freaked just having it on my shelf, let alone carrying it down on Amtrak into the building and <laughs> handing it over to somebody right. to hold while I was being sworn in. The Rebbe Mortchala, the, the owner who passed away in 1894, wouldn't touch anybody's hand unless they had immersed <laughs> right. in the ritual bath on that day, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you gave it over to Jeff at operations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gave it over in the room where we had the swearing in, but people didn't quite know what to make of it, but they made a big deal of it. And in <laughs> fact, the the official photographer of the Treasury Department took a number of pictures of it, not only of the swearing in, but of the front page and whatnot for, for the annals. Everything goes into the, you know, there's a, there were the little things, yeah? But then there were the really big things, like Shabbos and Yantif. The arrangement that I had with my undersecretary, David Malpass, was that I would go home every Thursday night. I would work from home on Friday so that I could be in Borough Park for Shabbos with my family, and I would return to Washington on Sunday every week. And the only issues that I would have were two. Number one, if the secretary needed me or if some other leader was coming in from a foreign country, I was, after all, in international affairs, and the meeting was scheduled for Friday, I would need to stay. If it was a morning meeting, I could probably make it home. And if it was an afternoon meeting, I was stuck in Washington for Shabbos. I would never make an issue of it because the job was important to me. So let's talk about something you have devoted 30 years of your life to bringing into existence. What is the Kedusha slave? It's two things. It's a person, a rabbinic figure who lived from, I think, 1740 to 1809 in Ukraine. Rabbi Levi Tzach of Berdichev. Yes, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, and it is also the book of Torah thoughts that are attributed to him, and it roughly translates as the holiness of Levi. Tell us a little bit about what really sets him apart. What was his approach? How did he see life? I'll give you two very basic defining characteristics that I feel are different. Number one is the breadth and depth of his learning and how he felt that there was no contradiction between 
remaining steadfast to traditional learning and traditional heritage and the new Hasidic movement. And he felt that there was no stira, there was no contradiction between living in both worlds and balancing. And that was really what defined his approach and his character throughout his whole life. Point number two is the approach that we see in his teachings in this very, very rich and beautiful book of the Caduceus Levi. What do I mean by that? If you pick up a lot of the Hasidic learning of the time, it's a very deep, dense, esoteric right. approach. That's something that we could just pick up and gain some wisdom from it because we would have needed to have spent two or three decades studying a bunch of Torah or, and Mishnah. Or, or, or you would need to sit down with somebody for an hour or two today and, right. and, and very slowly have somebody more learned than us unpack it for us. Yeah. Unlike that, the greatest part of the book deals with how the Caduceus Levi could help each and every one of us uplift ourselves and enhance our divine service and be better people. So this is amazing. And here we are on the cusp of Yom Kippur. Not to be crass, but we, we, we want examples. We want some goods. I'll give you two thematic examples. So starting with the Parsha of Shoftim. The book, to be clear, is, is a commentary on the Torah. So everything comes in form of some kind of commentary on whatever the weekly partial. The translation that I did because of limitations of time and space really just, as you said, focuses on the parshas and the holidays. So in one of the entries, the Caduceus Levy introduces an extraordinarily beautiful, simple, and really powerful thought on how we should conduct ourselves not only throughout the year, but in particular on the eve of our being judged. And to the Caduceus Levy, it's just really all about reflective judgment, reflective justice. And the simple thought is that how you would like God to look at you, you should look at the next guy. And if you look at the next guy in a manner that reflects the divine kindness that God shows in spades, that is going to open up the portals, your portals that are connected upstairs and ensure that your judgment from upstairs will be favorable. Mm. And it, it comes out in, in the verse, you should create a judicial system judges. You should create the system behind the judges of the officers that will implement for the judicial system. And you should do that for yourself, in all of your gates, meaning that if you take yourself as the judge in how you look at others, all of the sharecha, all of your gates, your portals will certainly bring through that type of, of, of goodness to yourself. Listening to you speak, I'm struck by the sort of duality of your mind, right? You have this intricate, encyclopedic legal mind, and then you have this really, really deep Jewish knowledge. And I'm wondering, do they complement each other? And from a young age, was your Jewish study something that helped you take on a new language and really pour yourself into it? And how do you see those sort of two sides of yourself intermingling? I only live in one world. It's impossible for me to separate between Kodesh and Chol, between spiritual, religious, and secular slash mundane professional. But having said that, I am wholly convinced that both of these sides of me are, are symbiotically connected. The example that I like to give is that there's a, there's a beautiful passage in Yuma, the tractate that, that relates to Yom Kippur, our topic of the day, where Rava, a great Talmudic figure, he was looking at a plate of fatty meat at the side of which was a, a goblet of, of heavy fortified wine. Recha v'chamra is the Lashon of the Gemara, the language of the Gemara. And uh, essentially, he said that there's two ways to look at this beautiful, luscious food and wine before me. One could look at it like a goslin, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guzzle the wine and I'm going to scarf down the meat and have a good old time, and then maybe I'll think about doing it all over again after, after the wine kicks in. Or alternatively, one could look at it and say, I am committed to learning. I'm committed to getting to the bottom of the truth. And I see 
this great form of sustenance before me. And I know that if I imbibe a couple of bites, wash it down by this wonderful wine, that I'm going to be able to learn on a much higher level. And so therefore, it's, it's a case of the mundane, the innate, actually being able to fuel uh, and provide en- greater energy to the spiritual. Wow. Where does one find this magical Kedushas Levi? It's as easy as a click on Amazon.com. One need only search Art Scroll Kedushas Levi. It's also available on Artscroll.com. <laughs> and as I understand it, at fine purveyors of Jewish books in Judaica. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me to both of you. No muscle tubs this week. We have a different note that we want to share. Liel, will you lead us? We do. So on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, our dear friend and colleague, Gabe Sanders, lost his father, Ivan Sanders, Menachem Yonah ben Israel Valea. As I told Gabe, and I hope he takes some comfort in it, it is said in the tradition that only the most righteous among us pass away on air of Rosh Hashanah, passing away a clean slate with nothing to, to atone for. And... As we always say, may you know no more sorrow. We love you, Gabe, and we're thinking of you and the whole family. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us emails at unorthodoxatabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Wishing all of you a good seal. Until next week, shalom, friends. Hey, hey. <laughs> I'm not a Jewish seal. I like that. Or, or is this fish herring? <laughs>